Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mississippi Book Festival. I'm Erica Howard, the impact producer at Frontline on PBS, and I'm delighted to be in partnership with the festival, as well as Mississippi Public Broadcasting, two wonderful organizations that are doing great work, uh, extraordinary work, rather, to really engage the Jackson community and the greater region. And I'm being joined today uh, for the program uh, with Jerry Mitchell, as well as Lisa McNair, two very special guests. And we'll be discussing Jerry's new book, which is titled Race Against Time, A Reporter Reopens the Unsolved Murder Cases of the Civil Rights Era. It is indeed a page-turner, a fascinating read that gives you a sense of his journey and what it was like to pursue justice. The release of this book couldn't be more timely, as our nation is at an inflection point as we take a look at the state of race and racial reconciliation and are grappling with difficult history and really taking a look at how unresolved injustice from our past when undealt with is still with us today. And I'd like to share a little bit more about Jerry for those of you who don't know him. He worked as investigative reporter for over three decades with the Clarion Ledger in Jackson He is the winner of the MacArthur Genius Grant. He is also a Pulitzer Prize finalist and has won more than 30 awards. And after leaving the Clarion Ledger, he founded the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting, raising up a new generation of reporters, which is music to my ears. And also we have Lisa McNair. She is the younger sister of Denise McNair, who is one of the four little girls who was tragically murdered in the 16th Street Baptist Street Baptist Church bombing that took place on September 15th in 1963. The church bombing was one of the most pivotal moments of the civil rights movement. And Lisa, as a result, has become a prolific speaker. And she shared her story widely with many organizations and colleges and universities and conferences and beyond. And so welcome both Jerry and Lisa. I'd like to start with you, Jerry, um, in reading your book, I was really fascinated, intrigued by what you showed is the power of journalism, its relevance, and how it is revelatory, and the work that it can do. And you certainly did a great job of that, um, bringing to bear justice in cases that people thought were completely shut. Uh, The Mississippi Burning case, um, Medgar Evers, Vernon Damer. Um, and the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. Um, I'd like to hear from you, what was your impetus? Because you're going along and what you normally do at the Clarion Ledger, and then something happens, something ignites in you. Well, I I happened to see a movie, (laughs) is the simple answer, at least what kind of began my initial journey, uh, Mississippi Burning, the movie, and... Not only that, but which is a fictional film about the killings of the three civil rights workers, James Cheney, Andy Goodman, Mickey Schwerner. But on top of that, I happened to see it with two FBI agents Mm. who investigated the case, as well as a journalist who covered the case. And so what I didn't know 
I knew none of this history. It was all new to me. I was relatively young when the Civil Rights Movement took place. I had no idea all this violence and incredible atrocities that took place in this country. And I, I mean, it was as if I lived in some kind of alternate universe or something. I'm like, what? And so I watched this movie. I get to the end. There are more than 20 Klansmen involved in killing these three young men. And my question is, nobody got prosecuted for murder? And I, I'm a court reporter. I cover murder trials all the time. I mean, I'm familiar with this process. And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, why not? You know, and it becomes a question they really can't answer. And so that really began my, uh, I guess, journey. And then the second thing was about a month later, I don't know if you're like me, but if someone tells me I can't have something, I want to like a million times worse. So there's something called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which was a state segregation spy agency. And all these spy records, more than 132,000 pages, were sealed. And uh, the Mississippi legislature sealed for 50 years. So when I found that, I was like, oh, there's something in there. So I began to develop sources who then began to leak me those files. You know, it's very interesting that you should say that. I think um, your book uncovers a lot about civil rights history that most people don't know, even for those who have taken classes or feel as though they're well-versed. Um, and what did stand out to me was the Mississippi Sovereign Commission, um, because it, to me it illustrated a sort of schematic of what was happening structurally behind yes. the scenes. Because yes. as you're looking at this question mark of why has there not been any prosecution, it exactly. looks like it relies or it lies within that sovereignty commission. Exactly. You're, you have, this was a, not just some rogue state agency. This is headed by the powers that be in Mississippi, you know, to preserve segregation at all costs. And so the governor is the head of this agency and the lieutenant governor and, you know, on down the line, House Speaker. These are all part of these people that are doing everything they can to preserve segregation. They're communicating with these uh, sheriffs who are in the Klan and et cetera, et cetera, those kinds of things. You know, I was uh, at the two Mississippi museums earlier today. Yeah. And... And one of the exhibitions they have on display, an actual filing cabinet from the Mississippi yes. Sovereignty Commission, yes. where it is taped and it's been wrapped around um, after it was voted that they wanted to keep those files locked until 2027. Exactly. Can you share a bit about, there's a, a visual illustration of how tightly they wanted to keep that locked, yes. but what your process was to sort of have that key to open up things? Well, I was very fortunate, and now I can reveal his name. My initial source was a civil rights activist named Ken Lawrence. And Ken had actually read all these files, you know, or read a sizable number of these files. And, um, and so he was kind of became my initial guide into these files. And I'll never forget the day, because uh, I, I had found some of these documents uh, accidentally filed in the open file at the courthouse. Someone had tipped me off about it. And so I find some of these sealed files. That was my first, uh, you know, ability to read some of these files. And of course, they had spy, you know, broken or not a spy. They basically had a spy planted within uh, the civil rights organization that came in and, and, and stole documents and photographs of these incoming Freedom Summer volunteers. And that, I was like, whoa, and of course, did a story about that. And then I talked to Ken, and I said, 
at some point, because I kept bugging him about what else was in there, and he wouldn't tell me. He said, well, he said, well, what do you, you know, what do you think is in there? It's, I don't know, or, you know, theft or whatever. And so, no, what's the worst thing imaginable? And I said, murder. And there was this long pause. Uh, and he goes, now do you understand? And I was like, whoa. So from that point forward, I was, I was absolutely determined to, to get those records. And, and through him and others, I was able to kind of begin to collect these things. And as you collected these things, I think um, you're able to paint a picture that most folks absolutely. don't know about. So I grew up knowing about Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, and from watching Mississippi Burning and then other things that are out into in the right. public sphere, I thought I had a good understanding of um, what happened with them and how things developed, and it appeared as if it was random. However, through your investigation, you unveiled an intentionality that I yes. think most people are not aware of. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, you see this throughout our American history, history I didn't know until I, I began reporting on this, is that historically there have been reaction responses to any kind of uh, upward rising or mobility or uh, empowerment of black Americans. There, there has been this response, uh, often violent response to that. And so you see that, you know, after Reconstruction and even during Reconstruction, you see that uh, after World War I, after war, which was Red Summer, after World War II, there was a whole series of lynchings. After Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Movement kind of begins to rise up. Here comes the Klan. I mean, there were all these things that, that took place in response to that. And if you could give us just um, an overview of that particular sure. case, and then I'd like to sure. turn to the uh, Sistine Street uh, yeah. Baptist Church. Uh, of, the, of the Mississippi burning case you're yes. talking about? Yeah, so what happened is... Um, this was Freedom Summer, and this had already been announced publicly. The college students, mostly from up north, but sometimes from out west and other parts of the country, college students, almost a 1,000 of them, were coming south to Mississippi. The idea was Mississippi was the iceberg. If we can crack Mississippi, we, we can not only change Mississippi, but change the nation. And so that was really what they set out to do. Uh, that was very much a part kind of this combination of civil rights organizations, uh, what we sometimes call SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, COFO, Congress uh, Federated Organization, which was actually the umbrella group, uh, CORE, and then you had uh, NAACP and SCLC, all these kind of acronyms. But these are all the civil rights groups kind of combining to work on Freedom Summer. And, and Bob Moses... Uh, w- was one of the, was basically the main organizer of that, and and so they came and trained at Oxford, Ohio, and then came down to Mississippi. But even before they even got past the training, this happened. Uh, the Klan burned a black church where they had been talking to them about having Freedom School. That and this was in Neshoba County, which is, uh, and so. Basically, Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney and Andy Goodman and 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 Andy, uh, pardon me, uh, Mickey Schwerner and James Cheney had already been working the civil rights movement for about six months anyway. And then so, but Andy was had come down with the Freedom Summer uh, college workers. But anyway, 
they all go to Neshoba County to investigate this fire. You know, they've burned the church to the ground. They've beaten members. They go to kind of investigate, and the Klan's waiting for them, essentially. And it was the deputy sheriff who was in the Klan, pulled them over, arrested them, took them to jail. And this was typically their, their mode of operation. They would jail them and then release them at night into the hands of waiting Klansmen. This is not the first time they've done this. They did it over and over again. There's a whole series of violence toward, especially toward black men that they carried out that whole spring. And so they um, released them into the hands of waiting Klansmen who basically killed them, uh, bury their bodies, you know, just execute them summarily, and bury their bodies 15 feet down in an earthen dam. Really a miracle they were ever found, uh, if not for the FBI being tipped off on where the bodies were buried. They, they'd still be there today. Uh, I think you're absolutely right, and that also in the process of looking for Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, that there were more. Yes. That they... You had Henry Hezekiah and Charles Eddie Moore, who were, you know, teenagers just hitchhiking in southwest Mississippi. And these Klansmen think they know something about, they were just rumors, they weren't true, of gun running. And so they, they take them out and they beat them and they beat them and they beat them and then throw them into the, the backwaters, essentially, in Mississippi, mm. yeah, where they drowned. Um, I'd like to... Uh, this is very sobering yeah. to, to hear this. Um, sure. I think that when many are, are learning about civil rights history and even violence, yes. that this is hard to take, to hear these it types of, of details. But I think also that people have to have an understanding of how violent the yes. violence was, right? And as you mentioned in this, this um, the discovery of these teenagers, that sometimes it's lost on the public that children were... Yes. victims as well. Exactly. And that brings us to these four little girls. And if you can give us a sense of how you came to this case and what developed from it, and then we'd like to hear from you, Lisa. Well, I, I, I really came to the case pretty simply. Uh, after I had already done two of these cases, um, it was kind of like, well, wh- what are the cases you're being looked at? It was a natural question my editors had and I had. And so the FBI was already looking at that point at the 16th Street Baptist Church uh, bombing and basically contacted one of, the, one of the last living suspects, whose name is Bobby Cherry, and, and, and talked to him by phone. And six months later, his wife emails me and says, Bobby wants to talk to you. So that's kind of what happened um, in terms of the, you know, those things, but I, I, I guess I did also did a profile of Doug Jones and them, you know, looking at the case and what they were looking at. So I wrote a little bit about, and that the grand jury was investigating. So, can you give us um, an overview of what happened that day of the bombing? Sure, um, and to understand context-wise what happened, this bombing did not happen in some kind of vacuum. I mean, people are probably familiar with the seeing the, the, the dogs and the fire hoses and those kind of images from Birmingham. So this was a whole campaign that, that came about in 1963. But if you really, really got to go back in time, like I was talking about World War II, 
This was a whole series. This was terrorism. This is American terrorism that was taking place in Birmingham. They were bombing African-American homes, neighborhoods. So many in one neighborhood became called Dynamite Hill. There were more than 40 bombings that took place in Birmingham before this bombing. And so it's within that context we understand. And, and they, they, did they solve any of these? Did they prosecute any of these? Did they pull anybody over? No. These, you know, uh, Reverend Shellsworth, who's Fred Shellsworth, incredibly brave guy, who kind of led the movement in Birmingham for so many years, was beaten. His home was blown up on Christmas Day. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that was going on, and I knew nothing about, certainly, before I began this journey. And so, so what happened is the Klan was upset because there were these continuing demonstrations. They were beginning to integrate now, the desegregate, the all-white Birmingham school. And so they, um, the Klan was upset about this. When you see those marches, where did they begin? They began at the 16th Street. Baptist Church. And so they, anyway, they, the Klan planted a bomb and it went off and they would have known this. It was a timed bomb and it went off when, when, when everyone was there and, and, and killed the four girls and of course blinded a fifth girl. Um, Lisa, I'd like to, um, hear from you, um, Knowing that uh, there was not justice that was done um, uh, for years, um, I had read that um, you would accompany your mother to visit the cemetery and visit with your sister. And when you came of age, you began to realize more about what happened and had these unanswered questions. And one of the questions that you had asked was, who has been held responsible for this and that your mother's response was no one. Mm-hmm. And yet, within that painful answer, your parents were able to respond to this, I felt, in a very powerful way. Can you tell us more about how it was coming up with your family and, and grappling, dealing with this tremendous loss? Well, um, Mama, when I asked her um, who killed the people, who, who were the people that killed Denise, um, she said that she didn't know and they had not arrested them. And I found it just odd as a little child because I was born a year after Denise was killed, wondering why no one had ever been arrested. And being a child, you watch TV, and on TV when someone commits a crime, they get arrested, they go to jail. And so it just seemed odd to me that we were not afforded that. But she said that God would be our vindicator and he would, you know, get them over time, you know, And it just seemed really like, okay, why don't we have the right to have justice in this country as African-Americans? So that was, I mean, she did a great job of explaining it, but it still seemed unfair to me. Um, I can understand that. I feel like that brings me to the next point of that I want to discuss with both of you is this unfairness where we have this contradiction where we live in this democracy that espouses freedom and equality. And then when we look at that particular era 
and we think about civil rights, one of the things that you had mentioned um, was that uh, a tremendous push for civil rights was coming not necessarily from the court cases with Brown versus the Board of Ed, but it was really coming from veterans who were coming home from World yes. War II and saw this contradiction of fighting for freedom for everyone in this nation and yet battling Jim Crow at home. Mm-hmm. And so can you just share a bit about, um, especially as we look at um, Medgar Evers and even um, uh, Vernon Damer, uh, he didn't serve, but his his son Sounds certainly true. did. Um, if you can share, I'd like to hear from both of you about this this contradiction that um, folks grappled with that you even saw in your work. Well, it, it, it is an amazing contradiction. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, John Dittmer began his, his history book on kind of the civil rights movement in Mississippi with Meg Revers and his brother Charles and several other veterans of World War II, uh, African-American veterans, who went to the courthouse. We are going to vote. We have fought for our country, and we're going to vote. And there were white men with guns who basically turned them away. And interestingly, Meg Revers said... He later remarked that he vowed that day he would never be whipped again. And so you see the determination and the courage of not just Meg Rivers, but so many like him that came home and just said, we're not going to take it anymore. We are going to fight. And that determination is what began the civil rights movement in this country. It came from the veterans and others like them who... Um, you know, when Bob Moses came in, the first person uh, that he got pointed to was Amzie Moore, a World War II veteran in, in the Delta. And so there's so many, if you go back and look at many of the leaders in the civil rights movement, they were made of people who uh, fought in World War II, fought in Korea, uh, and, and, and incredibly incredible women like Fannie Lou Hamer and... Uh, and so many others. Um, it actually, as you mentioned, uh, the veterans, and I'm, I'm thinking of Vernon Damer and yeah, his sons. His sons. Yeah, he had at the time he was killed by the Klan. He died defending his family. Uh, he had four sons in the military, uh, and there's an incredible moving photograph that, in fact, Lisa's father. Took, <laughs> um, incredible photo and I hope people can see it that shows you know just the devastation what what the what happened in that and they're standing there in uniform and you're thinking they went and fought for their country defended their country but there was nobody to defend them and you and that just tears your heart out I've seen that photograph. It is really powerful where you see the four men and they're basically standing on the edge of the crater that the bomb blast had mm-hmm. created. And knowing that your father was the one behind the, the camera, um, could you share a bit about what that relationship was like? Because here you have your family has suffered this great loss and now you're with the Damer family about the relationship between families, because um, I've just seen uh, other photos when uh, there has been someone who's been taken because of racial violence, and you see Marilee Evers with her child. You see the same thing with um, 
uh, Curtis Scott King. And there's sometimes I'm not sure if our nation really has an understanding um, in terms of the depth of that tragedy and pain and then also how families contend with that and even relate to one another, because I would think that there's a connection and bonding that happens. I don't know why Daddy came over there to take the pictures. I imagine he heard about it, and he was a professional photographer, and so he just drove over because that's one picture you've seen, but I've seen the picture of the whole reel from when he was there that day. But I imagine he could relate to what happened with Denise, and we all who've lost someone during the Civil Rights Movement have a kinship as the mothers um, during this time who've had children who've been shot by the police have a kinship. Um, It's a club you don't really want to be a part of, but it's a club that you can, only you can relate to what that's like and what that's been like. And for us, what I find the two differences are, uh, major differences, is there was a a series of silence. Mm -hmm. We didn't speak for decades about what happened. And only really for us in Birmingham, after Spike Lee did the Four Little Girls documentary, did we start to have dialogue and conversation and felt comfortable having dialogue and conversation with each other as well as people outside of our homes about the sorrow and the pain that we actually endured during that time. I'm glad that you brought that up um, in terms of that silence, um, that dealing with that pain and becoming silent about it, and then... Uh, There are others who come along as support, as allies, who I've just seen that during the process, and this brings in in Jerry and his work, um, where there's this trust built. And from that trust, there's an opening up. Mm -hmm. And there's relationships that are built that have actually then put everything in motion to align for justice. And if the two of you could even talk about those relationships, that's not... That's not easy to open up. It's not easy to gain trust um, when people have gone through something that's so terrible. But seeing this wonderful friendship that the two of you have, just mm-hmm. curious about what that process is um, to create this bonding. I guess it just happens. You know, I I learned about Jerry um, on a tour group, Soldier Into the Past, and I met Jerry and heard his story, and I was like, this white guy did all of that. I mean, he doesn't know me, doesn't know any of us. Why would he do that? But it's um, a bonding, a human bonding thing that any human being should have found what happened to my sister and other girls to be just horrific. But to know that there are white people out there who just didn't give a darn is just painful as a human being. And then to meet Jerry and all that he did, and he didn't have to, is just um, heartwarming that human beings and human nature will come alive to know that wrong is wrong and right is right. So it's just a blessing to be able to call Jerry friend. I, I, I mean, as I always say it's the, the greatest reward of, of doing all this, you know, working on these stories and everything has been getting to know Lisa and her family, the, you know, the, the Vernon Damer family, the Medgar Evers family, and the families of the three uh, civil rights workers who were killed. I mean, that to me has been the greatest honor. I mean, you know, the awards are nice, and I'm certainly not knocking them, but that's been the greatest thing. I, I, I really have felt honored to get to know them. And, 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 and to be honest, I mean, 
to share a story that kind of probably makes me look bad. I don't know, but I never forget this. This is the the night before the verdict in the, in the uh, in Meg Rivers' case, and Merle Evers told me a story she had never told me about how that. Um, you know, that night when her husband was gunned down in the driveway and she came outside, of course, and saw him and saw the blood and, you know, he was then whisked to the hospital. And she told me, and there were white bison. It was right next to a white neighborhood. You know, this is still segregation days. And so some white bystanders came up. And, of course, the police came up, and they were all white. And Merle Evers told me if I'd had a machine gun, I would have killed everybody white that night. And in that moment, it dawned on me, I had no clue what these families had gone through. None. I might say I do, but I really had no idea. And, um, and she told me anyway. And so fast forward, the verdict comes in the next day. Byron D. LeBeck with us found guilty. And she told me when... Later, when the verdict came in, it was like every bit of hate went out through every pore in her body when she heard guilty. And I was fortunate enough to be there when Lisa and her family heard that, heard those words as well. I think what you have just illustrated is a lot of what, when we have these conversations today and people are looking at, What's the way forward with all of what we've known and experienced and seen with hate? And the way forward, you've illustrated this allyship, yeah, genuine allyship that um, has led to accountability, where yes. it's been tremendous that your investigative reporting has um, brought um, justice. And it it just makes me think that this is a way in which, as people are grappling with questions of how do we go forward, that part of it is the empathy, yes, the honesty that people can share, and the allyship, right? right? If you could share a bit about what that has meant to you as there's justice that now has been brought um, yeah. regarding your sister, and then looking at Jerry and knowing that he was key in that. Just tell what it means to me. It just means the world that, you know, as a person who's, that's my earliest memory that white people killed my sister because she was black in a church. You know, that automatically sets you up. Well, all white people hate me. I don't know why. There's no real rhyme or reason to that. And so it creates a huge distrust unless you have something to counter that. My father went to a predominantly uh, black church, a Lutheran church. Um, All the members were black except five people, and they were the pastor, his wife, and their three kids were white. So I was able to early on connect with white people who also were already allies and, um, you know, for us and for the cause. So meeting people like Jerry just solidifies that information knows that and knowing that there are other people out there like them and i think the the way to grow that is to share true history in schools you know 
These stories are still being unfolded and developed, but they're not in our history books and they're not being told. I have so many white friends and they've heard in the last year or so no stories and like, well, I never knew. Well, I didn't know. And I think we as black people know a certain amount of stuff and we don't know everything because we lived it and we're in the midst of it. But then our white uh, friends, they don't know either because they're deliberately not being taught. Like we were not being taught and they don't have a resource for it. So when they hear it, they're like, well, why did that happen? Like people have asked me, why did it take 14 years for the first killer to be convicted in an abomination? Why? Well, why? And I'm thinking, you don't know why? Because of racism and because of hate. But it's a connection that they don't even connect. So we've got to educate on what happened to people back then so that people will know. And going forward, we will hopefully not do that again. Yes, I, I've read something that you had said that um, if people don't know their history, they're bound to repeat it. Exactly. And I would like to talk to you both about this issue of education, uh, especially as we look at what's happening in our society and this mm -hmm. whole conversation around what's being called critical race theory and mm -hmm. so on. Um, I just want to just add a, a side note about uh, a project that Frontline is working on, um, has created, called Unresolved, which takes a look at uh, civil rights cold cases, uh, specifically a list of over 150 cold cases that the FBI um, had been examining. Um, and in that process, we're presenting this project in a way to try and make it accessible to the public. We normally produce just documentaries, but trying to think of younger generations who may not necessarily tune in on a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock mm -hmm. to watch a documentary, they're online. Mm -hmm. And so the project is through Web Interactive. It's uh, going to be at the two Mississippi museums as part of an installation exhibition and also a serialized podcast and, of course, a film. So in the midst of that, we decided to, um, to develop curriculum through um, PBS Learning Media, realizing that a lot of folks in our nation, if they're learning anything about this history, it's in colleges and it's if they elect mm -hmm. that mm, exactly. course, which by then you've gone through a good part of your life and right. you're now a young adult and you're not even aware of something that's so critical. Yeah. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on this framing in our country where there's been that kind of, I would say, denial of education and truth but also in the way in which it's positioned as often black history or African-American history. When you look at it, that it is American history. Yes. It's our collective story as a nation. What your thoughts are on the idea of even your book, Jerry, which I really hope winds up in the canon of books and resources about <laughs> civil rights history of if we would reframe this as American history, of how that could be transformative. Just your thoughts on that, and then I'd like to hear from you, Lisa. Well, I just think it's, you know, it's just telling the truth. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, my background is journalism, and I think it's just telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And and I, I mean, I think there ends up being a lot of debate about, well, it's this or it's that. It's just the truth. It's uh, the truth of what happened. And I grew up totally ignorant about it. And I can't tell you how many people ever responded, and I don't mean it as a plug for my book, but I only mean it in terms of information. How many people have reached out to me after they've read my book and go, 
white and black. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and why is that? We're not teaching this. No, We're exactly. right now in America. We are repeating our history because we don't know our history. Mm. That's exactly what's going on. And we think and the history, people tend to think history, what does it matter? It matters because we've never, as, as Faulkner said, it's not, you know, his, you know, it's not even past. You know what I mean? It's still here. We're, we're still doing the same things. Yeah, it's our shared American history, exactly. like you said. Um, didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened right here on American soil. And it's important that we continue to teach the lessons of the civil rights movement. Um, On the heels of George Floyd being murdered, an organization formed called the Morgan Project. And I'm on the board. And they asked me to be on the board because um, Charles Morgan was a white man who came to a businessmen's meeting the day after the bombing and chastised all the other white people there, said it's our fault that the girls were murdered because we didn't stand up for what we knew was wrong. He was run out of town, and therefore he wrote a, later on wrote a book, A Time to Speak. And we are, have written a curriculum to, for the state of Alabama to teach and change the history and include civil rights history along with other history. And the state of, Board of Education has received it well. We've had one workshop. But it is our goal that history be taught correctly and including all of it. And I think that needs to happen all over the country because this history is not just good for black people to know. It's good for everybody to know because it happened and we can learn from it. And that's the only way we will change and become better. Thank you for sharing that um, about Mr. Morgan. Yeah, Charles Morgan. Charles Morgan. Um, I really feel like you've you've touched upon something I wasn't planning to go into, but... um, this idea of creating change, of being transformative, it seems to me that often in our society we're looking to sort of this hero figure mm, of right. someone who is elected or someone who's possibly appointed exactly. to take on the weight and the difficulty and the complexities around race and racism, that they're going to be the answer. Right. But really from that example uh, about Charles Morgan and even the two of you, it it is obvious to me that the answer is not in a superhero, but yeah. it's actually within us of ordinary people mm-hmm. who are willing to do extraordinary things such as speak up, which is extraordinary, especially in the face of the opposition that I could imagine. Right. Right. And knowing that in that there's a cost and you do it anyway. Can you talk about that of that perseverance, that showing up, and the cost of what that means, but how it's it's worth it? Um, well, it, it is worth it, you know, because justice matters. And um, I, I like what Solomon said one time, uh, which is, you know, when justice comes, it brings joy mm. to those who do right and terror to the evildoers. I like that. That's, that's, a, that's kind of a cool way to put it, you know. And so I think that's it. I, I think it, it's all about truth. And the reason we need truth is because we can't get justice unless there is truth. Mm-hmm. And even if we can't get justice, if for some reason justice is impossible, 
we can still have truth. And so that's why it, truth plays such an important role in this. And I think the, the, the missing piece so often I see is when you talk about, say, the civil rights movement, it gets so far too often reduced to Rosa Parks sat down and Dr. King stood up and hallelujah, everybody got their rights and now we can all sing Kumbaya or whatever it is. And, and, and that's crazy because that leaves out how many people, mm. ordinary people, that, are, that were behind this movement and, and brought change to this nation, sorely needed change to this nation. Yeah, I agree. Um, this idea of, of truth, right, and how powerful it is. When you began to speak your truth, if you can share what that was like and how others responded to that. Well, originally I started uh, my public speaking because my dad used to speak for the family and he wasn't able to as he got up in age. And so I just did it. And But now I've realized that's my ministry and my mission. And so people ask, how do you continue to do that and speak about something so painful? I was like, I have to. I don't have a choice in the matter. The story needs to be told. Hearts need to be opened and warmed from hearing me speak. Um, tomorrow I have to speak it to my church. I'm a member of a very large, predominantly white church, and most of them don't know who I am. So tomorrow we'll be where they're doing a class on race, a Bible study on race, and I'm going to speak tomorrow. So I don't know how that's going to go. I'm sure that there'll be tears and it will be very moving. But I think we have to connect with each other as human beings. You have to make that connection with one person. And each, like you said, each person has to be out there. We don't need a superhero. Everybody in that audience tomorrow needs to go back to their family. And if you hear racial words, when you hear of your friends or family saying something, you need to call them on it. Yeah. You know, if you go to work and they're saying something, you need to call them on it. Mm-hmm. You need to be an advocate of one for justice and for what is right. And it may cause people their family members, may cause people their friends. But in the end, like he, uh, he said, it will bring joy because justice will be served. I want to say amen. Amen. <laughs> amen. <laughs> Definitely. Um, Sue, so we're coming to a close in our conversation, which yeah. I'm lamenting. But I would like to get back to while we're, we're here is uh, because of the power of story. And um, I'm definitely one of those idealists who believe in that. And that's why I've gone into journalism and specifically documentary film. And when I would talk about impact, it sounded like some lofty goal. However, there are examples like the work that you two collectively do um, that um, has shown that the power of story and investigative journalism, how, Jerry, you said it can make the impossible possible. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I saw, you know, when witnessed the verdict in the uh, Meg Rivers case, which was the first case, you know, that, that went to trial. And um, that's, what it se- that's what it felt like, you know. It was like all these things that had to happen, uh, you know, a million to one odds, you know, when you began, there was no murder weapon, no transcript, no, nothing in any kind of evidence, none of that. And it, it, it just took that spark. It took that truth. It took that driven. It was 
No one, I mean, everybody knew that Byron D. LeBeckwith killed Meg Rivers. He left his murder weapon at the scene, had his fingerprint on the gun. He had bragged about it. I mean, there was like no mistaking, you know, and I spent six hours talking to him. It was, it was incredible, you know, racist guy and uh, who laughed about killing, you know, Meg Rivers being dead. And anyway... I think that's, you realize the power of story and the power of truth in that. When you begin to tell the truth, when you begin to, you start knocking away the excuses. You start saying, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that. And suddenly, when the truth is, it really begins to be known out there, people realize, you know. Is you know, I remember I've had some people tell me, uh, along the way, they'll see, you know, these guys being prosecuted or older, obviously. And they'll see the pictures of the video and they'll say to me, Jerry, why don't you just leave these old guys alone? You know what I tell them? These are young killers. They just happen to get old. The idea that they were able to live out the gift of life. Yeah. And, and you know, and... Uh, Lisa and her family, of course, testified before the uh, parole board when one of those bombers came up for parole. And um, I can't say enough good things about the courage of the families. It would have been so easy for these families to have said, we've been through enough. And everyone would have understood. It, we, we've experienced enough pain. Um, but Lisa and her family, uh, incredible family, uh, Thank you, Jerry. You're incredible, too. <laughs> Lisa, are there any uh, last thoughts from you in terms of your work with Jerry and um, even to impart something to those who are listening um, and all of this is new to them for the first time of what you'd like for them to, to take away from this conversation? Mm, remember that these were people. These were human beings. This really did happen. Um, not one time, but it's something that lives forever in families. Um, I have a memoir hopefully coming out next week, next year, which will tell my story of being the child that came after from this tragic event. Um, but it's important that we stop being selfish and being hiding. But see, learn these stories. Read books you hadn't read before. Talk to people you don't know and ask questions because we're repeating it at this bad part of history. And it's not going to go well if we don't figure out how to learn the lessons we need to learn and learn to love each other. It's so, so important for the, the core of our whole country. We need to know this and never forget. Thank you. Um, we're unfortunately at the end of our program, but I have to say it has been such an honor to speak with you both. Thank you so much for your time and, and all of what you give from your heart and continue to be um, an example for all of us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.